One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Thanks for downloading this podcast of NewsHour Extra. This one's on Haiti and foreign aid. It was first broadcast at 8 GMT on Friday the 7th of August 2015. Haiti has had lots of foreign aid in recent years. Just how much, we'll find out later in the programme. And that aid has produced some benefits. Some indicators are going the right way. But if you step back, perhaps imagine life as an unprivileged Haitian. The big picture is that Haiti remains a very difficult place for many people to live in. And as we'll hear, That's not just because of the earthquake, although that clearly made a huge difference to everyone in the country. That disaster struck on the 12th of January 2010. And this is how we on the BBC World Service reported it. BBC News with Marion Marshall. Some nine hours after a major earthquake struck Haiti, it's still not clear what the scale of the disaster is in human terms. Almost 24 hours after the quake struck, it's still proving very difficult to assess the scale of this disaster. But the images, voices and internet postings pouring out of Haiti all paint the grimmest of pictures. The capital of the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere has been devastated. Even if... So this is my first view of Port-au-Prince... In the daylight, we were out last night and saw some pretty horrendous things, but I'm just walking past what I'm told was a school, apparently looking for uh, any survivors, but it doesn't look like the kind of building that... Well, this is a heart-wrenching scene here. A woman has just uh, uncovered a blanket to uh, discover what we can only assume is her family member or loved one. She's collapsed on the ground. Two men are trying to... So, I mean... What about all these foreign aid organisations that say they're arriving? And so I've, I've I, seen some of them arrive at the airport. What's happening? I heard that. I heard that. I heard that. Uh, they, are, they, they say that they they, they, they come with, with clothes, with, with, with a, lot of, a lot of things, but we, we, we find nothing. So we, 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 are, we are like, we just, like, we just there and we just gonna do, to, gonna try to help each other. We are, we are alone. There are some women sitting here inside an ambulance, and as you can hear, they're singing. Excuse me, sir. Can I ask for your name, please? Yeah, my name is uh, Nicolas. Can you tell me, you're, you're here with a member of your family. What, what happened? Yeah, um, she was in a building. Um, she was uh, working at a, as, at a radio station, and the building collapsed with her, and her uh, two legs are broken. Um, is anybody able to help her? Is there no, any doctor? No, 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 no. Happily, her mother's a nurse and it's her mother who's helping her, you know? Her mother's helping her? Yeah, it's helping her and helping other people also. Because um, most of the doctors who are there, um, they can help because they ain't got the proper materials, you know, to come uh, and help the people. So they are suffering. It's a week since the earthquake struck Haiti, destroying much of the capital Port-au-Prince and killing, say, Haitian officials between 100 and 200,000 people. Food, water and other emergency supplies have continued to arrive at the congested US-run airport. Today there was the first evidence that those supplies were moving out of the airport in significant amounts to be delivered to increasingly desperate survivors. The US military, which will eventually have 11,000 troops on the ground, has begun airdrops to make... Well, there we are, some snapshots of uh, our reporting back in 2010, giving some impression, a reminder 
of just how uh, devastating that earthquake was. Uh, let's uh, introduce the panel now that we've got with us today. Jonathan Katz is a journalist who covered that earthquake. I think, uh, Jonathan, you'd been in uh, Haiti for a couple of years before it, so you were, you know, that was your beat, as it were, uh, with the Associated Press, and you've pretty much remained engaged with Haiti ever since, right? Uh, yeah, I was uh, unlucky enough to be there at that moment, but lucky enough to survive the earthquake, and so it's it's definitely been something that I've been paying attention to for, for the time since. And you, you're speaking to us from North Carolina, and you've written a book on these matters, so I think you should just tell us what the title is, and that will help people understand your views on these matters. Sure. Uh, the book's called The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster, which I, I think does sum up what's happened over the last five years and, and uh, in the time immediately following the earthquake as well. We'll ask uh, you to explain why you think that, and we'll hear some contrary views as well over the next hour. Let me also introduce Dr Karen Salt, who studies history at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And, uh, well, what's the title of your book? Uh, the, the title is The Unfinished Revolution, and it's on Haiti, Black Sovereignty and Power in the Atlantic World. Right, and, and you deal with the history of Haiti, and I think I'd just uh, before I introduce our next guest, it would be helpful just to ask you very briefly a bit about that. It all, it, it, tell us what happened on the 1st of January, 1804. If you could imagine just sort of looking out, um, you know, these various different revolutionary leaders, you know, they declare themselves independent, independent from a very vicious and aggressive um, institution and, and, and sort of structure of the, the French colonial system and a majority of people who are enslaved, right? And they've decided that they, not only would they be an independent nation, but now they're going to interact with all of these other entities, people who have not only said slavery is okay in their in their other colonial ports or their colonial areas, but also that people of African descent weren't even human, might even uh, lack the capacity to think, to actually be creative, to be even political. And they were trying to exercise that power and would do so throughout the rest of the 19th century to sort of say, not only are we here, and not only are we a presence that you're going to have to deal with, but more importantly, we're going to recreate the rules of what you think um, a black political nation would look like. So, so just to sort of summarise this for people who are not familiar with the history, this is Haiti, 1804, first ever... Uh, country of its kind getting independence from the colonialists and these uh, these people who've been brought in uh, from Africa as slaves asserting themselves trying to run a country and then up against horrendous uh, opposition in terms of reparations payments and the whole world system against them and all the other slave uh, countries dealing with slavery wanting to crush them right Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I think to to recognize that not only will, will slavery be legal in so many other areas um, throughout the Atlantic world, but the system will be designed to essentially keep out certain groups of people from governance of any kind, which is what Jamaica will struggle with for decades, well after um, the abolition of slavery. So so the fact that you will have a nation emerge um, and emerge and, and declare itself independent and then actually start to try to operate that independence, you know, have diplomatic engagement sit down and actually try to come up with decisions to create a sort of governing structure to to interact with other groups of people is a significant change in fact if you could imagine these other entities looking these other governments whether or not they're british whether or not they're american looking at this upstart place and trying to imagine what the heck do we do with it it's scaring all of our people it's scaring all of our enslaved persons that we have it's declaring that the the world that they had envisioned the world in which people of african descent would not have a voice, would always be enslaved, or would would essentially occupy a very, very select controlled role, 
wouldn't be possible anymore. Right. In fact, it, it would have to change. And that change reverberates throughout the Atlantic world. It is, it is, a, it is a seismic shock. Yes, exactly. Um, so the new independent Haiti was pay, made to pay for its impudence. Oh, and, and, and actually paid concretely with money. So by, by the time we hit about 1825, when uh, a series of pretty much disastrous negotiations complete with the then um, Haitian president, with the French government, the French government has demanded uh, essentially repayment for the loss of their um, property um, in the t- tone of about 150 million francs. And gratefully, there are French banks uh, re- at the ready saying, we will loan you this money um, for you to essentially go into debt um, continuously. Uh, but I think the story is, is, is more than just this. It's more than just a kind of constraint of the type of governance or the constraint of the power of Haiti. It's also a brilliance. There's an incredible amount of poetry. There's an incredible amount of artwork. There, there's an incredible amount of, of, of excitement coming out of Haiti and a big diasporic movement of people. Uh, in fact, we know that the first um, uh, person that we would call of African descent who's an anthropologist is a Haitian diplomat, um, a Haitian politician in the latter part of the 19th century. So there is some really exciting things that are coming out of Haiti in the 19th century that's more than just the story of disavowal or other places rejecting it or trying to constrain it or ignore it. There's also an incredible amount of vitality. Dr. Salt, thank you for that sort of brief introduction. I thought it was useful to get that get that all said just uh, right at the beginning of the programme. We'll be coming back to you. And uh, let me now introduce Raymond Joseph. He's in New York. And uh, between 2005 and 2010, you were the Haitian ambassador in the United States. And I should explain that you basically went to the US when the dictatorship was in place in Haiti, and you were running the opposition from there, leading figure in the opposition movement against the Duvalier regime. And you've written a book too. So what's your title? The title of my book is For Whom the Dogs Spy. Yes, that is a, ha- most, it's a most intriguing title. What, 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 what did you mean by it? Haiti, from the Duvalier dictatorships to the earthquake, four presidents and beyond. But the title of the book comes from Duvalier himself, because Papa Dog Duvalier, Francois Duvalier, uh, the official name. Uh, uh, just give us his years. He was in power when? He was in power from 1957 to 1971, and he died president for life. He's a and tough, when he died, he put, he put in his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, that they call Baby Doc, uh, and he remained in power for 15 years until 1986, when he was overthrown by a popular uprising. These were very tough men. And, and the book title? And the reason for that title is that Papa Doc Duvalier made people think that dogs, cats, and other animals were spying for him. And, you know, in Haiti, uh, where superstition is very rife uh, and voodoo is strong, people believe that. So as a young anthropologist, uh, you know, I didn't agree. But I know I could not tell the people that dogs don't spy because they would think I am naive. So I decided that I would use Papa Doc's own uh, theory or philosophy to deal with him. And so I started a radio broadcast from New York, and I was giving information of what was happening in Haiti every morning at 6 o'clock, six days a week. And by doing that, I convinced a lot of people that the dogs who were spying for Duvalier were now spying for me. Are you a rival to the BBC? 
<laughs> were, you, were you taking on the BBC's job in well, Haiti? Well, I was not taking on the BBC. I went on beyond the BBC. <laughs> and I should tell you something here that is that I think should interest you. When I was a teenager in Haiti, my father bought me a shortwave radio. And I was listening to the BBC in the 1940s. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. I was worried there that you were a, you were a, a, a potent rival, uh, but in, in fact, you were a listener. Now, very good. So that's uh, very good to meet you all, and, and thanks for joining us. Now then, um, what I'd like to do, Jonathan Katz, could you just start us off on the elections? Because one of the reasons we're talking about Haiti now is there are elections, and it's quite complicated. So can you talk us through what the elections are this week, what they're for, and what the context is? Sure. So uh, this coming Sunday is planned uh, a set of uh, legislative elections that are, are, are going to be the, the first round in, in what are supposed to be a series of elections to be held this year, um, including a presidential election that's scheduled for later in the year. These are incredibly important because these are actually the first elections that are being held in Haiti under the current president who was elected in the months after the earthquake. And so it's a it's it, it, it's a complicated story. It's, it's it's been very messed up. But what essentially happened was uh, just a couple of months after the earthquake, um, there were presidential elections scheduled uh, to replace President Rene Preval, who was the president of Haiti at the time of the disaster. And the international community, especially the United States, were very committed to making sure that those elections went forward on time. Elections are very important to them. Symbolically, it was going to be a clear sign that Haiti was continuing on on the right path or moving in the right direction or, or whatever metaphor you want to use. And uh, those elections went forward. But of course, it was an extremely problematic time to be holding an election in the areas of the quake zone. Uh, polling places were in rubble. The voter rolls were in complete disarray. A lot of people hadn't received their voting cards. And uh, the United States, in particular, the Organization of American States, of which it's the major part, had a very heavy hand in that election. And uh, Hillary Clinton, who's now seeking the presidency in the United States, came down to basically put a very heavy finger on the scale um, and make sure that uh, Michelle Martelly, a pop singer who goes by the name of Sweet Mickey, who had been eliminated from the election, would be put back into the race. Um, but since Mr. Martelly has become president, Haiti has failed to hold any elections whatsoever. So all eyes are going to be on Haiti for the next couple of days to see if this first round is finally going to go forward. Right. So the president is ruling by decree at the moment because he hasn't been able to agree with parliament, right? Yeah, the uh, parliament has disbanded. Um, mm -hmm. And so that leaves the president to rule by decree. Um, this is a situation that Haiti has found itself in uh, a couple of times since the overthrow of, of uh baby doc Jean-Claude Duvalier in 1986. Um, a new constitution was formed in 1987, which uh, created very severe checks and balances. Um, and oftentimes the only way that presidents could basically find a clear uh, path to rule the country was to prevent elections from being held and to, to watch parliament disband and then rule by decree. Um, that's often condemned by the international community. But President Martelly, who has a lot of support, especially from the United States, saw to it to govern in that way as well. Right. And then after these elections, he may get a more amenable parliament. So then there'll be a period, presumably, of more functional government with, with both you know, the president and the parliament working together. But he's, he can only do one term, right? Uh, yeah, he can't run for re-election. And like I said, that 
following presidential election is supposed to occur this fall. The first round is supposed to be in October, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he should have to step down by, uh, depending on who you ask, either early February or the middle of May. It's, it's a little complicated, but uh, five years on from when he took uh, the oath of office would be in May. The Constitution says he has to leave in February. But regardless, he's not supposed to stay in power beyond early 2016. And will he, in your view, try to? No one knows, really. Um, he has said that he is intending to step down. Um, the State Department uh, in Washington is very confident that he is going to, but uh, in Haiti, you re- really never know until things actually happen, and, and then sometimes it takes a couple of weeks after that to make sure that they stick. Ray- Ray- Raymond Joseph, I heard you laughing as, as I asked, <laughs> will he try and hang on to power? You've got your doubts, have you? Uh, look, if Martelli had his way, he would have done what baby dog and papa dog did. He believes in power of the executives. And to put things in perspective here, let's see what's going to happen this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Martelli uh, came to power in 2011. He was supposed to have local elections back then, in 2011, 2012. He never did. He named executives of the president in all the local uh, constituencies, like the mayors, all are appointed by Martelli. And uh, when the elections for senators came in 2012, for 10 of them, he did not carry out the elections. That's the reason why now you have a, a Senate with only 10 members, 20 are out. And all the deputies or the congressmen uh, in American terms, are out. That's 118. So this coming Sunday, you're going to have to fill 1,420 local posts, including 140 mayoralties. And you know how many candidates you have for that? 40,000. Mm-hmm. You have also to fill 138 legislative posts, including 20 Senate and 100 and 118 deputies. And how many candidates for that? 2,300. And for president, which will be October 25, you had 72 candidates, of whom 58 were retained by the Electoral Council. And you know how many parties are supposed to be uh, working in Haiti now for all these things? 192. So, that is a you lot, know, this yeah. is a mess. I don't yes. see how they're going to in, do it. Yes, well, I, in, in a lot of countries, they say that the goal is supposed to be one man, one vote. But in Haiti, it's often one man, one party seems to be. Right. Yeah, no, it, does, it does, does sound messy. And, uh, and Dr. Salt, can I just bring you in just to, to, to comment on that remark that Martelli would be a, a Duvalier if he could be? I mean, it was probably a slightly tough way of putting it. But uh, how firm is that political tradition of authoritarianism? How much of a struggle is it to introduce a different approach? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, one of the things uh, that the reason why my book is called The Unfinished Revolution is it's trying to understand, you know, how do you create a structure of governance that's different than a brutal one that um, has tried to subsume you and, and, you know, and try to kill your you know the people who look like you right how do, what what does that look like um and and yet every time it seems as if 
there is an attempt to create a new constitution or to imagine a new way of living. It's a lot of external interference um, in in Haitian politics, um, and that's that's old. That's well older than Duvalier. That's well into the um, the earliest parts of even even some would even say during the revolution itself, um, from 1791 to 1804, that there was an incredible amount of external interference um, of, of external people trying to sort of push one candidate one way or push people another way. Um, and you, I think you can continue to see that with the, the current administration, the ties made with certain foundations or with certain people. Some have said the kind of rock star status. Um, there's been some interesting photographs of him. Um, I can remember one where um, uh, Martelly standing in front of um, the, the the sort of presidential palace as it's being it's starting to be rebuilt, and he has this hat on and these kind of jeans, and his shirt sleeves are rolled up, and and he looks he looks presidential. He looks like someone that you would want to turn all your cares and woes to. That's good. That's um, good, isn't it? That's what presidents are meant to do. Yeah, it is. But you, but you also start to imagine, you know, sort of where does that slide into sort of easy moments of. Um, uh, of presidentialness slide into moments of the charisma getting out of a, a bit out of control, right? Um, and and people trying to sort of maintain a, a position. Um, I I don't know uh, whether or not he will essentially not run um, uh, as a as a candidate. I think the question he is cannot less. Cannot run. He cannot run. Right, right. We know he cannot run. Um, but the question is, who will then run? Um, he had chosen. He had chosen one man. He put forward exactly. Uh, to run uh, as president of his party. And by the way, the party is called Tetkale. Tetkale means bald-headed. Yes. And, and Martelli himself is bald-headed. Yes. So it's Martelli without Martelli. Martelli exactly. is going to be there. Exactly. And and uh, and when you have that kind of presence, when you have when you have someone like you know um, Baby Doc Duvalier coming back into the country, and you have um, and then you had a whole bunch of other people who had uh, were part of that administration, seemingly coming back into into uh, or, or related to them coming back into post. It, it, there's a lot of eyes on this moment. Okay. Um, I, I just have to ask you this, Raymond Joseph, before we wrap up this half of the programme, because you stood to be president once, didn't you? I ran for president uh, in 2010 after the earthquake. But you'd have been uh, different, right? Well, uh, the <laughs> reason why I decided to run for president, I've been in the Haitian politics for a long time, uh, but it's the earthquake. When the earthquake happened, I was in Washington and I saw the Haitian leadership falling on the job. And that's when I say, well, this country needs new leadership. And my goal was to go to Haiti and work for the decentralization of power, to have the outer uh, communities control their uh, future. I think Haiti needs decentralization of mm -hmm. power to really succeed in life. Okay, we've done our homework now. We've done the the history and the basic politics. So uh, that uh, takes us to the end of the first half of the programme. Jonathan Katz, Karen Salt and Raymond Joseph, thank you. We're going to talk about the aid in the second half of the programme and the extent to which it has achieved anything and uh, what it teaches us about the efficacy of foreign aid uh, more generally. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. And uh, I'm joined by Jonathan Katz, a journalist who's worked on Haiti for many years, Dr Karen Salt, who studies the history of Haiti, and Raymond Joseph, who's in New York, a political activist. 
and uh, diplomat and a man of many parts there. So we're going to talk about aid in this uh, second half of the programme. And I want to start with Thomas Adams, who was brought out of retirement, actually, in November of 2010 and asked by the Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton, to oversee this massive American assistance programme to Haiti, which really took off in particular after the earthquake. And he agreed to that. And he's just retiring Having accepted that job in 2010, he's just stepping down this week. Uh, So it's a good time for him to look back. And uh, as he prepared to step down, I caught up with him on a line from his office in Washington and asked him what all the money... Actually, we should just say, first of all, the money is something like $10 has been raised for Haiti. There are lots of different estimates, but it's in the region of $10 that has been pledged to Haiti, and much of it's been spent. What has that achieved? Haiti is still the poorest country in the hemisphere by far, but uh, it stabilized Haiti. If you'd been there right after the earthquake, and I think we all remember the horrible pictures that came out of there uh, of, you know, the destruction and then the tent camps, the massive tent camps. The tent camps are almost all gone. Health indicators are better. Some of their institutions have been been rebuilt. Haiti's uh, next door, as you know, to the Dominican Republic. They have about the same population. Haiti has about 50,000, 55,000 government employees. The Dominican Republic has 500,000. So, you know, the capacity of the Haitian government is not great. Uh, Many of those employees uh, in Haiti don't show up for work. They're poorly paid. So so building the capacity of government has has been a struggle. Uh, The Haitian economy, which actually had a negative growth rate in the 40 years before the earthquake, has turned positive. 3 or 4% growth a year, but it needs more uh, economic growth. It needs about 7% a year economic growth to eradicate poverty. And that has been prevented by political gridlock there. But when you compare, as you just did earlier, the situation with the Dominican Republic, how much external help did the Dominican Republic have to get to where it's got to compared to Haiti? It gets a l- very little aid now because it's become a middle-income country. It's one of the more prosperous countries in the Caribbean. Exactly. It's a fascinating comparison, really. So what conclusions do you draw from that comparison? When I took this job, I asked a a development economist at the International Monetary Fund, what was the difference between these two countries? Because 40 years ago, Haiti and the DR were in the same place economically, with Haiti slightly ahead. She responded, the short answer is that the Dominicans had slightly better dictators. One example of that is Trujillo wanted to stop deforestation, and he murdered people who cut down trees. But that, that stopped deforestation in the DR. And Haiti... Papa Doc wanted to cut down every tree and pocket the profits. So good economic decisions, relatively good economic decisions on one side of the border and and bad ones on the other have have kind of led to this disparity. Plus, Haiti has had economic embargoes put on it to to get rid of dictators in the past. So, you know, there's there are a lot of reasons why Haiti has a lot of a a lot of challenges to overcome. That's very interesting because your answer basically says internal politics is key. Governance is key, but also I think donors have helped a number of countries. You know, if you look around the world historically at the Marshall Plan, if you look at South Korea, if you look at Japan, uh, you know, foreign aid has helped. But, you know, the hard work has to be done by Haitians. We can only support that. Let me now just uh, ask you a bit about the situation in the United States politically, because you had to appear before the subcommittee on Western Hemisphere of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, This was, uh, first of all, we've got Senator Barbara Boxer putting a question to you. This is what she asked you. Do you believe these elections will occur as scheduled? 
There, there are, as I said, some a few issues left. Uh, one is uh, lack of funding. Tomorrow at the UN, I'm going up for a for a donor conference to try to get some more money. We're certainly going to put in more money, pledge more money for elections. And how I much is it is needed to? to well, the gap's about fifty million dollars for three rounds. Um, how many people are, live in Haiti? Ten, ten. Well. Uh, Probably some estimates recently are 11 million. No one knows for sure. There hasn't been a census lately, but 11 million is a good. And you need 50 million to pull off. Yeah, they have very. These are 11 million people. These are elections for every political office in Haiti. Right. That was one little exchange. And then you also had a question from Senator Marco Rubio from Florida. And I think they've got around 250,000 Haitians living in Florida. So it's an issue in in his state. Americans have donated millions of dollars to Haiti towards recovery from the 2010 earthquake. And while the U.S. and the U.S. government has provided more than $6 billion in aid. While there is no question that Haiti has improved in the last five years, recent reports that private and public aid has been mismanaged are incredibly disturbing. The simple question is, how has the aid for the recovery and reconstruction been spent? There you are. I've got two senior politicians asking questions about the aid or sort of, you know, with Barbara Boxer case, sort of yeah, casting a bit of doubt over the amount needed. How big an issue is this in Washington? The reality is that uh, there's been broad bipartisan support for Haiti um, since the earthquake. Um, there are people who, who, who ask me constantly, you know, you've had five years, uh, billions of dollars. Why haven't you fixed Haiti? You know, my answer to that is if you if you kind of do the math of annual economic growth and, and other things, Haiti can become a middle income country, but it's probably going to take them 25 years to get there. And that's just because they're starting at a very, very uh, low and poor rate. But again, you know, you've got to start and they've, they've made a start. And well, just to press you a bit on the um, the Washington politics, Hillary Clinton uh, who I think appointed you, didn't she? She did, yes. Yeah, and and the Clinton Foundation has put a lot into Haiti. Former President Clinton has made a you know a big commitment to Haiti. It, doesn't that mean that this could become an issue in this forthcoming presidential election? Could I mean Haiti is is, is certainly identified as uh, with Clinton's in some ways, but I haven't really really seen much of that. Haiti is is a priority for this administration and for the American people because. After the earthquake, half of all Americans' families texted money for Haiti. Half uh, of all American families. Families, wow. yeah. So Haiti is, Haiti, um, you know, they saw those pictures on TV. It's very close to here. Um, every time I go down to Haiti, the plane is full of young Americans going down to work on building houses or something. Uh, again, I think the support for Haiti is, is, uh, is strong in this country and will continue. Thomas Adams reflecting on his years of work trying to get this aid that's uh, been pledged to Haiti and is being spent in Haiti to be used to good effect. And uh, we've still got our panel with us. So, Jonathan Katz, I need to bring you in here. And could you talk us through your perspective on how that money's been spent? And just start with the point that actually the aid programmes began before the earthquake, didn't they? Uh, so first of all, there has been uh, foreign aid in Haiti for a very long time, basically as long as what we would consider modern aid programs to exist. Um, the thing is that you have to understand aid in its larger context, which is that foreign aid is only one element of policy. And it's it's one element of the way that larger and more powerful countries, and when we're talking about Haiti, we're really talking about the United States, 
you know, when I hear uh, Mr. Adams talk, and he's obviously a, a very smart and very engaged guy, but he's, you know, speaking from the perspective of, of the administration and, and from the U.S. government. I mean, you sort of have to take what he's saying and kind of unscramble it. Okay, so he, he's talking about the, the internal politics of Haiti and, and how important the governance of Haiti is. But there's really no such thing as internal politics of Haiti when you're talking about uh, things like the, the response to these past crises and especially the earthquake. Because Haiti doesn't have the money. Haiti's government doesn't have the money. It doesn't have the clout and it doesn't have the power to, to be making decisions for itself and to be implementing policy itself. If you are imagining that the way that foreign aid works is that a country uh, has this big pot of money and then they just sort of drive it over to a poor country and drop it off at the door and say, boy, I hope this helps, that's not how it works at all. Much of the money that we talk about being given from uh, the international community, the United Nations, from the United States to Haiti is money that Haiti and nobody in Haiti ever actually touches. It's going from a bank in Washington to a U.S.-based contractor or aid group, which sort of spends the money as it sees fit. Uh, When you put that all together and you have all these things that sort of work at cross purposes with one another, it's really not a surprise that the amounts that have been talked about in the past wouldn't have achieved this kind of transformative result that people often imagine in the wake of something like the earthquake in 2010. Okay, I'm just going to pick up on one point, specific point you made there, that what happens is that the money, first of all, goes to a lot of American contractors. But secondly, they take their 10% or whatever it is, their overhead costs, and then they pass on the work to another organisation that also takes 10% for its overhead costs. And I mean, that can happen. I mean, it's not just Haiti, but that really diminishes the amount that gets to the ground, right? It's absolutely true, but overhead is only one small part. Almost nothing in terms of foreign aid, very, very little of the money ever actually gets into the hands of people who are in countries like Haiti or, or, or in positions of governance in, in places right. like Haiti. I mean, so this is an appalling no, situation I mean, because obviously the money's given with goodwill, but it, it, it so often doesn't work out. Let me bring in Raymond Joseph yeah. and, and ask whether you recognize what you've just heard there. You know, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a think tank in Washington, put out a report in July of last year, and it showed that 62.2% of U.S. aid contracts went to Beltway companies. That's companies around Washington, D.C. And only 1.5% went to Haitian companies. Of all the money that Congress said was uh, disbursed for Haiti, only 9% went through the Haitian government. So there are a lot of questions to be asked. Where did the $10.4 billion go? Yeah, I mean, it is you know, a distressing situation, but it's even worse than that because the fact that these agencies are present and often with foreign staff, uh, often who don't speak the local languages, uh, actually inhibits the government, Dr. Salt, doesn't it? Because the government it, it finds itself... Uh, A, losing its uh, talented workforce to these aid agencies who pay better, but also sort of having its functions supposedly done by someone else. Definitely. And you have them, uh, I think, as you said, some with goodwill coming in to offer certain sorts of educational services or um, a a fairly active community that's coming in offering health services. But you definitely have others who have come in seeing that gap um, and being able to offer 
a whole range of a sort of public um, deliverables that that people who would be listening would think, oh, you know, your local council deals that, or that's the, that's a governmental role, and it's the role of these other entities. And what happens if it doesn't work, right? Or if they don't actually get um, anything to the into the hands of people who need it, can those people go and sue them in the in the local community? Can they? Who do they go to to get accountability? What do the Haitian people do now? I think one of the reasons why you don't hear that question being asked in, in, in the, the, the Senate panel um, is because this isn't something that sort of accidentally happened over the life of, totally. of uh, humanitarian aid. This was yeah, yeah. baked in. This was the plan from the beginning. No, you can right. go back and read documents um, that were written internally in the U.S. government um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, specifically about Haiti, that they would use what we now call non-governmental organizations, what were then known as private voluntary organizations, to mm-hmm. expressly weaken the government of Haiti. But the idea was, we are going to give money basically to ourselves. We mm-hmm. are going to implement whatever projects we want ourselves. And in doing so, we are going to weaken the Haitian government. So it's really crocodile tears to mm-hmm. look at it and say, well, however did Haitian government get to be so weak despite all the, the money that's been given? Did you hear about the more than $450 million that Red Cross got mm-hmm. for Haiti yeah. and they built six houses? Okay, well, let me intervene there and say that's... I mean, the Red Cross would say that that's not strictly fair, that they provided a lot of temporary housing to a lot of people and that they did achieve some stuff, although they have admitted some error and say that, you know, some things they were hoping to do didn't work out right. But I'm going to throw this right back at you, uh, Raymond Joseph, and say, look, one of the problems that these people like the Red Cross face is they don't want to give the money to local partners because they fear that their donors will subsequently find that it was corruptly spent. Well, uh, you know, there are people locally that can use the money properly. What happens is that the international organizations come in and they work only with foreign people. They don't learn how the local people are. I think for Haiti to really move forward, we have to even bypass government, as you say, but work with the local people. And local people know their needs. But we do have an interview with someone from the Clinton Foundation, and the Clinton Foundation has been very active in Haiti. And uh, you'll hear it on our website. If you go to the BBC News Hour Extra website, we'll put it up there so you can hear it. But he made exactly the same point, actually, uh, Raymond Joseph. He was saying that yeah, he didn't really want to say that they can't work with the government, but he was pretty much saying that. And, and what they can do is work with local grassroots organisations that do actually deliver. This is Karen Sold. I'm going to go back to Jonathan's point mm-hmm. where he was raising about um, the the sort of uh, infrastructural um, packaging of aid and how it was intentionally with the in the earlier sort of formulations trying to weaken the Haitian government, um, I actually would wonder, Jonathan, if this is an older tactic of actually being concerned about Haitians, period, um, and, and not only their capacity of, of governing themselves, but their capacity to actually do it in a way that is efficient and, and quote unquote modern. Um, you can see some similarities between much older um, rhetoric when people are talking about um, should they should they go in and try to set up a coaling station or try to have some sort of interaction. And the same rhetoric from the diplomats talking about that ends up coming out now, not only about the poorest hem- country in the hemisphere, but a people incapable of governing, almost in the sense of saying there's an innate problem. And I think that's problematic, um, that those are not, you know, there are people not actually thinking about the ways they're framing these problems and these questions. So, Dr. Salt, are you saying that the aid agencies 
are modern-day colonialists. I wouldn't necessarily go that far of, of placing those that sort of uh, denomination onto everybody, but I think there is something to be to be gained from taking a moment and starting to think about the ways these things are being framed. Because right now, if we're starting to imagine that there's going to be some magic moment, like the parliamentary elections are going to change everything, or if if this one person comes into power, it's going to change X or Y. You know, we're not looking at the cycles that are repeating themselves. It's very important to take a step back and, and say that what needs to happen here and, and the way to understand this is to try to figure out what the goals actually are, who is actually trying to implement those goals, whether they are successful in them, and if they are not, how they are going to be held responsible. Mm-hmm. And until you have sort of a clear metric, a way of looking back and actually evaluating, this all sounds very fuzzy and confusing okay. because it's just all sort of about good intentions and poverty and whether things vaguely get better in the future. But mm-hmm. we could actually be very specific and and we're not. Raymond Joseph, I know you've got to go in about three minutes through no fault of your own, but because the studio in New York is about to close down on you. So I'm going to ask you just for the next three minutes to talk about what Jonathan Katz is is discussing, which is absolutely fascinating, which is that this aid isn't uh, all of it you know, purely goodwilled, and that the original purposes were, you know, I'm sure from the point of view of many Haitians, were quite sinister and were trying to basically exert some kind of control over the country. Do you accept that analysis? Yes, I do. I maintain that for Haiti to really move forward, you have to go to the local communities Mm -hmm. and work locally. There is a plant called Caracol Industrial Plant in northern Haiti that uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton went to inaugurate in October 2012. Uh, Her husband, President Bill Clinton, the envoy of the United Nations, was there. The president of Haiti was there. So it was a great program. They were to have 20,000 jobs in the first five years and eventually 65,000 jobs. Well, who was in charge of that program? Okay, well, I'm going to ask you about that because I asked, actually, that's in the Clinton uh, Foundation tape you can hear on our website. And I, I put that to them and said, look, that thing failed. You know, tens of thousands of jobs were promised. And I think so far, 7,000 have materialized. And when pressed, the reasons for that that were given to me by the foundation were lack of power. You know, they've had to build their own power plant there to make it work. Lack of cooperation from customs officials. Uh, you know, lots of sort of infrastructure and local bureaucratic problems that prevented it working. Those are the real obstacles. Do you not accept that? I don't know whether I can accept that. Uh, I think perhaps they did not work with the local people in deciding what they were going to do. Well, you say that, but if a customs official blocks vital supplies getting to the industrial plant, I mean, yeah, probably because they want bribes. Well, this should be talked about. This should be explained publicly. Yeah, OK, it's public now. I'm doing that job for you. And I, I'm just sort of suggesting to you that, you know, blaming the aid agencies may often be legitimate, but it may just be that a lot of these problems are, are local. Well, uh, well, I don't think I'm blaming the aid agencies so much. But when you, took, when you take the money that is going to be spent for the country, you look at the salaries, who get the salaries, mm. and how much of the goes to salaries of foreigners. 
Uh, yeah, I take your point. A lot of the aid agency money goes it's, to foreign staff. Yeah. I think there's something important to say about Caracol, though, which is that it's this is not just a question of, of blame. It, it's also a question of, of what are they trying to do there? I mean, if Caracol is a successful venture, and it has created some jobs there, these are very low-paying jobs for the most part. The anchor tenant is a company called Sea, which produces clothes um, for pr- primarily uh, the ones that are coming from Haiti for the United States market. And the people who make them are paid very little. I was up at that factory um, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to the people who are, are working on the floor. And a lot of them, the money that they earn, by the time they get done paying for their transportation to and from the industrial park and buying food for themselves and their family – they have no money left over at the end of the day. So even if we were to consider this to be a successful project, successful for whom? Ultimately, the goal of Caracol is to have Haiti be part of the United States economy and produce cheap clothes that American consumers can buy. But there's a lot less attention paid to what the long-term benefits are going to be, not only to the people who are working there, but also the people in in the outside communities. And by the way, the the farmers whose land was taken over to to build that industrial park in the first place, who now have nowhere to grow their crops. Uh, Raymond Joseph, I know uh, your studio will have run out of time by now. So many, many thanks for your very interesting uh, contributions to this discussion. And we've just got uh, Dr. Salt and Jonathan Katz with us now. Dr. Salt, we've been hearing Jonathan Katz making this strong case that that the motivations behind the aid need examination. You agree? Without a doubt. We've got lots of evidence about the catastrophic um, economic and agricultural decisions imposed on Haiti. And Bill Clinton has been very public about a particular decision that he made that was about introducing rice from the United States. And that introduction of rice into Haiti, when that essentially came in, was able to push out all the local rice growing and and essentially inflate the cost of of that crop for people. So you've you've got these knock-on effects that seem as if they're all about... uh, you know, creating good, but they actually have humongous consequences for the actual people. And I and I think that is that's what needs to happen is is a is how do these things bleed into each other? Because to say that this is all about internal politics um, or a, a question of of particular types of corruption within within a particular set of people loses sight of the fact that there's a lot of people benefiting from this system being the way it is. Yeah, but Jonathan Katz, let's uh, look at it this way: If Haiti had been left to its own after the earthquake it would be in a far worse place than it is now, right? Absolutely, but you can't start history at uh, 4.53 p.m. on January 12th, 2010, because these projects, these programs, these these uh, missions have been going on for decades before the earthquake struck. So part of the reason why the Haitian government is so weak when the earthquake strikes, part of the reason why the Haitian government was so unable to respond to the disaster on its own was because it had been weakened by these programs, by these policies going on years. Then. So, Jonathan Katz, how far do you push this? When you hear... President Putin talking about Ukraine, saying these NGOs and the foreign aid agencies who were there, they're all, they've got hidden agendas. They're trying to do things to Ukraine, which will damage Russia. It's all political. From your experience in Haiti, you're thinking, yeah, maybe. 
<laughs> well, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, what what I would say is that uh, you know, look. First of all, NGO is a very broad title that applies to a wide range of organizations that do completely different work. Some many of which have absolutely nothing to do with one another. The one thing that that I would say is right, you know, for people who criticize NGOs in all these different circumstances, is you know, pretending that NGOs aren't doing political work and aren't advancing. Uh, certain agendas, uh, that would be false. I mean, you do have to understand them in that context. To say that they're all stalking horses for, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, these, you know, nefarious ulterior motives, um, that's that, that's that's going a bit too far. But I mean, I, Dr. Salt, I think this may be the final remark in the programme, but it's, it is very interesting what you've both been talking about. And I need to say, I think, that the aid agencies, and if you listen to the Clinton Foundation interview on the website, they will defend themselves. And they're saying that they have produced gains and that there mm-hmm. are, you know, there are genuine things in terms of school attendance and some health indicators and so on where they've got you know limited but real progress but dr salt what would your message be to donors we just heard earlier in the program that the incredible figure that half of american families gave money to haiti Mm -hmm. uh, with goodwill Mm -hmm. i don't there's any doubt about that what would you say to those people well, I think it depends on which people. If we're talking about individuals who have contributed money, you know, I, I would I would ask those individuals where did they think they were contributing to whom. Um, I would ask for them to to try to go and find some sort of accountability from what, whatever charity or group that they've given money to about where they spend their money. Just 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 do some homework, um, if you will. Um, if we're actually talking about other types of donors, because we know that we're not just talking about the individuals that have given money, but the large government governments that give money, they're well worth scrutinizing as well, um, much less the people who actually may be po- politicians who have their own NGOs or who have contributed or set up NGOs. So it's it's not necessarily this landscape just a full of moral good that people can just, you know, look look for pluses and minuses on either, on either side. It's a lot of folks who find that there is a benefit for being, you know, there's some corporate responsibility, right, um, in, in terms of investing. That's what we're talking about, you know, this crowd space full of all of these people with different kind of motivations, different values, different desires for what they hope th- they're going to accomplish. And at the end of the day, somebody has to be accountable for all of that. Humanitarian aid is an industry, full stop, is a business, and you have to understand it like that. The skeptical journalists, the skeptical <laughs> academic. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Salt and Jonathan Katz. Fascinating discussion. And uh, earlier from Raymond Joseph, if you want to hear the program again, or, in fact, any of the other NewsHour Extras from the archive, you can do that. Go to bbcworldservice.com if you search for NewsHour Extra there. That's bbcworldservice.com. Search for NewsHour Extra. I hope you both are going to subscribe. If you want to send us an email, please do so. We do try and reply to all of them. It's uh, BBC NewsHour Extra. That's all one word. BBC NewsHour Extra at gmail.com. And on Twitter, it's at BBCNHExtra. So do try and engage with us. We're coming out every week now trying to deal with subjects in a little more detail than uh, other programmes are able to achieve because of their tight timetables and all that sort of thing. So thank you very much from Owen Bennett-Jones. Thanks for listening and from all of us here. Goodbye.